Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. Last week we looked at the bloodline um, of the Messiah. It's not exactly a real clean, pretty family tree. There's not a lot of pretty fruit falling off of that tree there. I mean, there was all kinds of mess in there. It included outsiders. It included Gentiles. It included prostitutes. It included murderers. It included all kinds of stuff. And some of you may be thinking, hey, maybe I need to read the Bible a little bit more. That sounds pretty interesting, right? Um, There was all kinds of stuff in the bloodline of Jesus. And through that broken bloodline, we get the Messiah that puts us all back together. That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. And that's the beautiful picture of the the message of Jesus Christ. And one of the more unlikely facts about the, uh, about the bloodline of Christ was that it featured and it included so many women in it. Um, you say, well, obviously in a bloodline there have to be women and men involved in that because that's how biology works. But in the bloodlines, when they would record them in history, they normally only recorded the name of the man or of the patriarch. They didn't record the women's names. Matthew, to include so many women in there, broke from tradition Because it reminded us of some of the brokenness and because it reminded us of some of the chaos and the dysfunction was in it. If you remember some of the women that were mentioned in there, Tamar, right? Remember Tamar's story? We talked about that in detail last uh, last Sunday. How many of you, be honest, you went home and Genesis 38 was your family devotional passage that night, right, with your kids? No, because it's a little graphic, right, on what goes on in there. But Tamar, we know her story. She had twins by her father-in-law, people. Okay, that, let that sink in for a minute. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute that was saved by her faith in God while she was there at Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite woman brought into the fold by the kinsman redeemer Boaz. And then Bathsheba, we know the story there. She was the, right, the wife of Uriah who was pressed into an affair with King David. And then, they had to, then she gets pregnant. They covered it up by having Uriah killed on the front lines of battle. And so then she marries David. And there's all kinds of mess coming out of this bloodline. And today we look at one more woman mentioned in the bloodline too. We left off Mary. Now Mary brings along with her some scandal as well. We often talk about Mary in very positive terms, and we should, but in the day that this happened, it didn't look very positive. It was fodder for a lot of gossip. It was fodder for a lot of judgment. It was fodder for a lot of things. I mean, the legalists and the Pharisees and the the judgmental people were having a field day with Mary and with Joseph and with Jesus. While While Mary was highly favored among women in the eyes of God, she was highly disgraced among the rest of the world because of the way that God had chosen to bring Jesus into the world. And also, the world looked differently at Joseph for the rest of their lives, too. So let's look in Matthew chapter chapter 1, and beginning in verse number 18, we're just going to read a few verses this morning to verse number 25. And it says in verse number 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or it happened in this way, When as his mother Mary was espoused or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. And he said, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost." 
And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, she, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, or shall conceive, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and he took unto him his wife, and he knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And one of the things that I try to do, and maybe you do this too, is when studying a passage, is I take and I like to take that passage and I want to see if I can reduce that down, boil it down, if you will, to like a one-line truth or a one-line nugget of wisdom of what this passage is trying to say. And many of you may have study Bibles or Bibles that have headings above certain passages. That's kind of the idea uh, behind that. How many of you have a heading above the passage that we just read? Okay, go ahead and call that out real loud, real quick. What's the heading say? Okay, those are all wonderful headings, but I think my heading is better. <laughs> Just teasing. Uh, my heading, if I were to say this, if I were to say the heading of this passage, the thing that we need to get from this is that following Jesus is difficult. Following Jesus is difficult, and that's really the idea behind the message this morning, is that following Jesus is difficult. We're going to look at the story of Mary and Joseph this morning, and this passage, while we have, are very familiar with it, we use it a lot of times at Christmas time. You may have sat around the Christmas tree and read this as a family together, and it sounds wonderful. Nothing about what we just read communicates ease and comfort for the players in the story. In this passage, we kind of see the irony of the Christian life. And it's basically this, is that following Jesus does usher us into a life that is simultaneously the most joyful and also the most challenging and most difficult life on earth. Following Jesus is not simple. It's not easy. Getting saved is the easiest part of being a Christian, right? Coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I receive your free gift of salvation and I put my faith and my trust in you to be Lord of my life is the easiest part because then comes the following. And the following includes things like what Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, right? Um, John chapter 10, verse 10 says this, that Jesus gives us life and he gives us more abundantly. Psalm 1611 tells us that in God's presence is the fullness of joy. Psalm 8410 says that one day in God's presence is better than 10,000 days anywhere else. But then in Matthew chapter 16, we see the other side of the coin. He tells us that if we're going to follow him, we have to take up our cross daily. Not just once a week, not just when we go to church, but daily take up our cross and follow him. Now, I don't know what kind of image that puts into your head, but the, as the, when Jesus said that to the, to the ancient Jews, to hear the mention of a cross was something that was publicly, privately, emotionally, racially, and socially offensive and terrifying. Think about it this way. If uh, you went uh, to a new neighbor's house, you had a new neighbor that just moved in, they invited you over for dinner to get to know them, and you come in, and as they're giving you a tour through the house, you walk into the baby's nursery, and above the, and above the crib is this rope tied onto the wall, tied into the, tied into the, uh, the shape of a hangman's noose. You're thinking, okay, that's odd. So then you go in, you sit down, and you walk through the kitchen, and in the kitchen is a picture of an electric chair hanging on the wall. And then you go into the family room, heading in towards the dining room where you're going to finally actually have dinner, and you see hanging on the wall there is not family pictures. It's a picture of a firing squad. Let me t I don't know what you would do in that situation, but let me tell you what I would do. Let me, t let me tell you what I don't do. I don't stay for dinner. 
Do you stay for dinner in a place like that? And let me tell you what else I do on the way out. I grab the kids and I look at them very closely and more intently than anything I've ever told them in their lives. I look at them and I say, do not play with their kids. Right? I tell them, we have to be careful because the Adams family just moved in next door. All right? So be on your guard because that's not normal. And that's the kind of idea when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. We hear it in a different light today in 2019 than they heard it back then in 1 AD. But Jesus said that to follow him is going to cost. It is free to be his child, but it will cost to be his disciple. I love the way that Pastor J.D. Greer says this. To actually go all the way and to follow Jesus the way the Bible intends means that we have to have a strong grasp on why he's worth it. Matthew 1 and 2, right out of the gate, as the Gospels start, as the New Testament starts, right out of the gate, he tells us how difficult it is to follow Christ. He tells us how difficult it is to follow Christ and, why he, and how also his first followers found the motivation to do so. Paul said it was difficult to follow Christ. Let me ask you this. Have you found difficulty in following Christ in your life? I have. We, we all have all found that it's not easy sometimes to follow Christ. Following Christ means departing from some of the things that conventional wisdom would tell us to do. It means following something different that's upside down and opposite from the, what the rest of the world expects out of human nature. Paul said it was difficult. The apostles said it was difficult. Many of you in this room agree that it is difficult. But this morning we see two others who say, you think following Jesus is difficult? We see Mary and Joseph who basically say, oh, you think it's hard? Hold my manger. Some of you are going to get that reference in just a minute. But what he's saying is you try following Jesus and parenting him at the same time. Think about that. You think following Jesus, try being his mom or try being his dad. That's, that's a high task. That's a high calling to have to take. And Mary and Joseph did it with grace and with dignity from what we can see in the word of God. And they're mentioned as people of great honor because they took upon themselves a task and a calling that God chose them for. And church, God has chose us for a specific task and calling as well. And it's going to require some hard stuff too. But we have to decide up front, is he worth it? Mary and Joseph both did. So today what I want to do is, is accomplish three things. I want to look at the context of Mary and Joseph's calling to parent Jesus. I want to look at what following Jesus actually looks like from their example and then where the strength to follow him actually comes from. Because trust me, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to need strength to do it. So let's look at the context. First of all, we have to understand the virgin birth has always been and always will be a hard sell. People have been trying to go against the virgin birth for ever since it happened. Because if they can tear down the virginity of Mary, they begin to tear down the doctrinal credibility of Jesus actually qualifying to be our Savior. But imagine how hard a sell it was for Mary to convince Joseph of the virgin birth. Guys, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Ladies, put yourself in Mary's shoes. And let's dig deeper into the text that we just read. In Matthew, verse 1, in Matthew 1, verse 18, the birth of Jesus came about this way. And I'm reading now from uh, the Christian Standard Bible. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. In the King James Version, we see that word engaged. It actually shows up as espoused, which we look at and we say, oh, that means engaged. 
But in the original text, it's from a different word, which means something much deeper than what we understand in our culture about engagement. See, engagement in our culture is basically let's just plan a wedding, right? Engagement back then was something different. It was something that was actually given a completely different word called betrothal. In the Hebrew, it was a tradition called kiddushin. And what betrothal was, was a couple were actually put together by their parents. Most of the time, the the marriage was arranged. And so they were put together, and a legal document was signed, meaning that the husband and wife were legally married with every right and every privilege and every responsibility except for two things. They could not live together, and they could not sleep together. They had to wait for a year for both of those two things to happen. One of the reasons for that was to make sure that the bride was actually sexually pure. See, why in the world would you have to wait for a year? See, back in those days, the, uh, the groom's family would pay a large dowry or bride price for this bride. And so they wanted to make sure that their investment was sound and their investment was worth it. So they had to make sure that there was no hanky-panky going on between husband and wife for a year to make sure. And if she didn't turn up pregnant, that was great. Then, that, then they, therefore, uh, the marriage was sealed, and then they could, they could go forth with being a married couple like they should. But for every other reason, every other, uh, and in every, other, uh, in every other way, they were legally married. If they wanted to break the betrothal, they had to actually get a legal divorce. That's a little bit different than engagement today, isn't it? A little bit different. And uh, so, anyway, so you imagine how Mary must have felt when all of a sudden she has to come to Joseph and say, Joseph, um, I had a visit from, a, from an angel named Gabriel the other day. And uh, he told me that I'm pregnant. <laughs> and Joseph's sitting there thinking, are you kidding me? Right? And, and, but it's okay, Joseph. I, I, I haven't been cheating on you. I haven't been stepping out. I'm still pure. I'm still chaste. But I am going to have a baby. Now, Joseph is a pretty smart man. You know, he's a working blue-collar kind of man. He's a carpenter, but he at least paid attention in biology class in school. And he's like, there's only one way that babies come around here, Mary. I'm not an idiot. And so he's mad at her, and he's thinking, he's probably thinking, yeah, okay, so the Holy Spirit is giving you a baby. And what else? Maybe a unicorn to ride? How hard, would, how hard of a sell would the virgin birth have been for Mary to sell it to Joseph? So Joseph, of course, doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe anything she's saying. He's mad as a hornet. He's thinking, this is going to be embarrassing. What am I going to do? He knows the law is that he could have her executed. But the Bible says that Joseph is a good guy. He's not just a good guy. He's a righteous guy, which means he has the heart of God, and he has the heart of Jesus. And here's something we have to understand. Joseph does a very merciful and compassionate thing. Not only does he not go to the nth of the law to have her executed, he also decides that he's going to divorce her privately, meaning he waives the rights of having two witnesses to come and confirm this to clear his name. He just divorces her privately, meaning that puts his family into a lot of trouble. They're not going to get their dowry back. So he shows the greatest compassion and mercy he could at that point, which tells us something, that when you have the heart of Jesus, your understanding of justice is tempered with grace and mercy. And so Joseph has this heart of Jesus. He was kind and compassionate, and then an angel visits Joseph, right? In verse 20, we see after he had considered these things, or while he was considering these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and says, Joseph, and this is important, son of David, 
This shows us why Joseph is involved in the story to begin with. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son and you are going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So guys, let me ask you a question. If you're about to break up with your fiance because she's pregnant and it isn't your baby, would it make a difference to you if an angel comes down to you in a dream and says everything she's saying is true? Would it make a difference for you? Or would you just brush it off and think, man, that's the last time I douse my pain in pepperoni and sausage pizza before I go to bed at night? But Joseph believes it. You have to stop and ask yourself, why in the world, and think about this context, why would God choose to do it this way? We had to ask that last week with the lineage. Right? Why would God choose that lineage? Why would God choose that story, that family tree, all of that brokenness? Why would he do that? It's because he's teaching us something through real life. Obviously, the angels' visits to Mary and to Joseph prepared them for their calling. But according to Scripture, the angels only showed up to Mary and Joseph. They didn't come and tell the rest of Nazareth about God's plan. No one else knew that Mary was carrying the Holy Spirit's baby. Everyone else thought it was either Joseph's, and they had not followed the laws of betrothal, or it was worse, it was somebody else's baby. And what kind of man is Joseph to, like not, you know, to, to not do what he needs to do as a man and set things straight? Either way, they're looking at these people, and their reputations are ruined. From this point on, Mary, in everybody's eyes, is an impure girl. They pull out the yearbooks from high school, and they go through, and they put their finger on Mary. They say, man, remember her? Man, who knew she had a dark side? For the rest of her life, Mary is looked at as an impure person who didn't follow the laws of purity. She has a scarlet letter on her chest. Everywhere she goes, pretty much in the eyes of the people that she knows. And from what we're told in Scripture, she's not vindicated until 30 or 40 years later when the New Testament is actually written. And Joseph, he's already dead and off the scene before that happens. So Joseph, everybody looks at him like he's nuts. For Joseph to marry her was like he was confessing the baby is actually his and he'd not followed the traditions of betrothal. Mary didn't get the storybook wedding that she had hoped for. Because the, the wedding wouldn't take place until after the betrothal was over. And they were celebrating the coming together of, two, uh, of, of the two households. So she didn't get the dad walking her down the aisle. She didn't get the beautiful dress. All those Pinterest boards that she'd collected in her account were all deleted. Nothing's going to happen the way that she had anticipated. And don't think that just because we're 2,000 years into the future that, that Mary getting ready to be a bride is any different than ladies when you were getting ready to be a bride. The excitement that she had. The thoughts of that day being amazing and beautiful and wonderful. And it's all dashed because of Jesus. After that, they're going to have to flee their homeland. They're not even going to be able to stay in their hometown. They're going to be able to live the life that they had thought all because of Jesus. It's not really a your best life now kind of experience, is it? So why did God do it this way? One, way is because, one reason is because this is the only way the prophecy would be fulfilled. See, the virgin birth has to take place the way that it did or else Jesus doesn't qualify to be our Savior. During the, for Mary to be pregnant during the betrothal to Joseph gave us a child legally from the line of, of, of David, the royal line of David, because he came from Joseph's line. For Joseph to adopt Jesus as his own son meant that Jesus, the Messiah, came from the line of David out of the tribe of Judah. But for him to be born of a virgin Mary meant that the seed of sin did not get passed on through a human person, through a human father. 
And so that protected the virgin birth and it protected the perfection of Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice. All of that sacrifice of Mary and Joseph was necessary so that Jesus could be our sacrifice on the cross. So when you want to look at this, and the Bible tells us because of our sin that Jesus went to the cross. So when you think about, man, why did Mary and Joseph have to suffer this much? It's because of us. Why did they have to have it this bad? It's because of us. And I also believe this is the second reason. Because the Holy Spirit is laying out the pattern from Jesus' birth for how we are supposed to follow him. And so that's what we want to look at for the next couple of minutes too. What does it look like to follow Jesus? The first thing is that following Jesus requires trust and it requires absolute obedience. Look at verse number 24. What does Joseph do? When Joseph finally woke up, what does it say? He did as the angel had commanded him and he married her. Notice what Joseph did. He obeyed. When Joseph woke up, he obeyed and he obeyed immediately and completely. It says he went and he married her. For Joseph to stay married to Mary and assume the role of father of the Messiah required that Joseph would believe the impossible and risk everything on it and that nothing, everything else was up for grabs, that nothing else could be secured by Joseph. Everything was riding on this baby. For us, trust and absolute obedience means taking on the nature of Christ which goes against every bit of conventional wisdom and every natural urge that we have. Understand that to follow Jesus means going against every natural urge that we have to follow flesh. Because flesh and Jesus will never lead in the same direction. They'll always fork in the road from one another. So think about some of the faith struggles that we have today. For some of us, one of the faith struggles that we have is giving. We've talked about that in our church. It seems to be a faith struggle that we have in our church right now. Some of you, though, you wrestle with giving obediently and generously when the Bible tells us that Jesus gave extravagantly. He gave of himself. He held nothing back for our good. And you're struggling. And, and, and let me say this. I'm not saying that you're struggling because you hate God or you don't love God enough. I think the reason that many people, many Christians struggle with giving faithfully and obediently is not because they don't love God. It's because they don't trust him enough. Because if we struggle with being an obedient and sacrificial giver, the reason is because we lack confidence in his promises. Because God doesn't give a command without giving a promise to make the command worthwhile. When God gave the promise to his people to give and to give sacrificially and to give generously, he said, do this and see if I will not pour out blessings that you cannot contain. That's the promise. So what we're saying is, it's not, I don't love God enough. It's like, I don't trust that he's going to follow through on that promise. We look at month, we look at money, and there's more months than money, and we say, you know what, God's not bigger than that. And so what we normally do is people who lack confidence in God, we'll throw some guilt money in the offering plate once in a while, but we'll never come to a place where we give in a sustained and sacrificial way continually. Didn't like that one, we'll talk about another one. We'll talk about forgiving. Not giving, we'll talk about forgiving. That's a struggle of faith as well, isn't it? See, we're told that Jesus was not only sacrificially giving, but he was sacrificially forgiving as well. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say to his father? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was sacrificially forgiving. And for some of you, that's a struggle. I'll tell you that for me, for a lot of my life, and, and still in my that's a struggle for me to forgive. Because I like to feel as though I've got something over on somebody. Forgiving is difficult. 
And for some of you, you're thinking, you have no idea what's happened in my life, and if what happened to me happened to you, you wouldn't want to forgive either because I can't forgive. Maybe a parent walked out on you when you were younger. Or maybe you're struggling to forgive a family member or a family friend or a teacher or someone that you trusted and they took advantage of you. They abused you physically, emotionally, sexually. And you carry those scars and that pain around with you every single day. And every single day you think, if I'm going to forgive, that means I have to deal with that and throw that under the blood every single day. And that's just too tall of an order for me. Listen, Oprah, Dr. Phil, the greatest psychologists in the world are not going to give you the resources that you need to find the forgiveness in your heart to get past that kind of pain and that kind of damage. The only way you're going to be able to forgive and find that, and find that forgiveness in your heart is to come to a place of bold confidence in God's forgiveness and in his ability to turn the ugly things into beautiful things and in his ability to turn all things together for good to realize that his grace and his power to restore brokenness and to heal those things is greater than our, even our ability to let him do it. But the minute we give that to him, he begins to work. See, because following Jesus, truly following Jesus, means that we don't play games. That Jesus is not just a Sunday morning dalliance. Jesus is an everyday institution in my life. He's my only hope. He's my only one that I can completely and utterly trust in my life. And the beautiful thing about it is that the only one you can trust has all power in his grasp to heal your broken world. See, following Jesus requires trust and obedience. Following Jesus also requires accepting a death sentence. We talked about the death of our anger. But there's also some other deaths for Mary being pregnant out of wedlock mean, meant that every day she walked around under a death sentence, literally. See, for Mary, legally, the only person that could pronounce that death sentence over her would be Joseph. But it didn't mean that there weren't renegades and vigilantes around every day that wanted to take justice into their own hands, matters into their own hands. And we can't act like we don't know that that still goes on today. There were a lot of people who looked at her and wanted her dead. And she had to accept that, knowing that that's what she would have to go through to carry the son, Jesus Christ, who eventually would one day, somebody would want him dead so much that he would actually go through with it, but for our good. For some of you, following Jesus is going to require putting a lot of things to death, putting the flesh to death, maybe putting to death some of your dreams. You had this idea of what life was going to be like before Jesus and he's like, it turned out differently than I expected. See, I'm not, I, I'm not supposed to be preaching today. I'm supposed to be an attorney. Actually, before I was supposed to be an attorney, I was supposed to be a professional baseball player. Well, by now, I'd probably be retired. I'm getting older now. But I'd be, get, I'd be preparing my Hall of Fame speech, not my Sunday morning sermon. See, when you follow Jesus, it requires understanding that you can dream your dreams, but they can only be in accordance with God's plan. And God's plan's better. You know what, when I finally got on, on board with God and I said, hey, all right, I'm going to be a pastor. I surrender you, to you, Lord. And I was like, I surrender all. I realized getting into it just how much I hadn't surrendered all. Like, okay, I'll do this, but I'm going to do this. You're going to bless me. You're going to give me the biggest church in the world. You're going to give me this national platform. He didn't do that either. But what God is doing is better. 
And you may be sitting here thinking, yeah, there's some dreams that I had to put to death too. He may call you overseas to be a missionary and your friends and your parents aren't gonna understand. They're gonna try everything they can to keep you stateside, to keep you in their eyes safe. And they're gonna maybe try to threaten you with things and say, hey, we can't have a relationship anymore. Or I'm not gonna fund this for you and things. And for many of you, that's gonna feel like a death of a relationship. It's gonna feel like death to follow Jesus. John Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress, he said, he spent many years in prison for preaching the gospel in his own country. In his journals, he wrote this. He said, the parting with my wife and my poor children has oft been to me in this place is the pulling the flesh from my bones. I have often brought to my mind many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family has had to meet with, especially my poor blind child who lays nearer to my heart than all that I have besides. If I ever would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that I can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reconcile, reconcile myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyments, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. And can I be honest? I had a hard time putting that illustration in because I'm not there yet. I'd like to say, man, I got the faith of John Bunyan. I don't. I don't even know if I got the faith of Paul Bunyan. I don't know if I'm to the point where I can say I can sacrifice everything and put everything on the altar. I would hope so, but there are times when my wandering heart doth get in the way. I'm not talking about being a delinquent father or a delinquent husband. I'm talking about loving Jesus so much that as he says, it puts everything else in the category of it's all yours. Do with it as you will. See, because it requires a death. It also requires a self-denial. What could be more upside down at Christmas time than talking about self-denial at a time when all we do is eat candy and get presents and do all that stuff, right? But self-denial is an aspect of following Jesus. Joseph had given up his pride. He'd given up his reputation. But that's not it. God's asking for more. Look what it says in verse number 25. He says, but he married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until after she gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. So by the laws of betrothal, Joseph already had to wait for consummation for a year. Now he's got to wait for the better part of another year for the baby to be born because God said, you can't touch her until, after, until Jesus is born. That's a lot of self-denial there. And I think that that's there not just for just a little piece of the story. I think that's there to speak to our culture especially too. There's a lot of people today, Christians, Christians included, who say that when it comes to uh, when it comes to sexual purity, that's just a thing of the bygone era. We have a lot of Christians today that say that, you know, I don't need to wait to have sex until marriage. It's not really the will of God today. But here's Joseph. He's a man who was married, and he waited after he was married because it was the will of God. See, following Jesus means that you consent to do things his way, even if it means dying to yourself some of the things that you might otherwise have. See, Joseph goes ahead and marries her, obviously not the ceremony that either one of them had decided. Parents are none too happy. In-laws are probably mad at each other, saying it was their fault, it was their fault, it was their fault. Nobody comes to the reception. And then after that, Joseph has to delay and marry, delay their time together as a couple. You see, if we're going to have a family, if we're going to do things the way God says to do, it means we've got to give him everything. Joseph then also, another part of his self-denial is that he names the baby Jesus like he was told to do. 
naming the child was a right that was given to the father in the Jewish custom. Joseph didn't even get to take the fatherly right of picking the name, which was an honor that Jewish men lived for. While, while the women probably spent their time getting the, thinking about the beauty of the wedding day, the Jewish men spent the time thinking about, what am I going to name my boy? Because that's going to live on forever. That's going to be recorded in the genealogies. Joseph doesn't even get to name him what he wants. So there's a lot of people who have a hard time letting go of what they think they're entitled to or that they should have in order to follow Jesus. Maybe because you're worried about the name that you're making for yourself, but you have to understand that following Jesus means I'm not living for my name, I'm living for his. That when you get saved, God gives you a new name as it is. It's a name of chosen. It's the name of child. It's the name of prince or princess of the heavenly father. And that name is better. You know what? Joseph would have never chosen a name that was as good as the name Jesus. You know what Jesus means? In the Hebrew, it means Yahweh saves. God saves. Think about how much this complicated his life. And that's what leads us to the fourth thing about following him. Is that following Jesus means accepting a life of inconvenience. Naming the child was that right that was given to the father. And for Joseph to actually name Jesus meant that he was also saying to the world, that's my boy. It meant saying to the world, yep, everything you thought was true. Mary and I, we didn't wait. Mary and I, we didn't follow the custom of the day. We're dishonorable people. We're impure. She's got a scarlet letter, and I'm just a dirty down dog. And he's probably thinking, if only you knew. But think about how it complicated his life. He lost his reputation. He lost his business. Not many people wanted a carpenter who had scandal in his life. He lost his home. See, one of the other reasons for the betrothal period was that the man, the groom, was given a year to secure a place to live and build a home for the husband and wife to live in. Joseph had spent that, Joseph as a carpenter man, he pulled out all the stops putting together a beautiful home for him and Mary to live in. And guess what happens after Jesus is born? An angel shows up and says, hey, you gotta get up and you gotta go to Egypt. You gotta leave your business. You gotta leave this home that you had planned for everything. Everything that Joseph could look at and say, I'm a man, this is what I've done. Everything was stripped away from him for the cause of Jesus Christ. Everything. He was told to go to Egypt, and now he had to start all over in a foreign land with a baby and a wife. See, the truth for us is that serving Jesus is going to be rarely, is rarely going to be convenient. See, a lot of times we look at things and we say, man, I need to volunteer at my church. I need to do some things. I need to serve. I need to do this. And we look at it and say, yeah, but I'm so busy. I'm so tired. I, the kids, I got all, I'm running back and forth, and we think it's just not convenient for me right now. Try explaining that to Mary when you get to heaven. And I don't say that as a guilt trip. I say that to myself too, because I look sometimes and think, man, it's just not convenient. How would you explain that to Mary? I'd have to give up my softball league or my Tuesday night club with my guys. In, or I'd have to get to church too early on a Sunday morning to serve in that ministry. And Mary's like, yeah, I had to bear a son for nine months who wasn't even mine, but that's okay. Joseph's like, you know, I had to flee the country after building this awesome house for my wife and my family because of that baby. But please tell me about your suffering, oh, great person of faith. So we think that we're suffering. And we think sometimes we're at our limit and I can't do any more. Is it just because of our convenience? See, look, we don't, we don't obey Jesus because it's convenient. We obey Jesus because we're committed to Jesus. 
We do it because we're committed to him. Ministry is not convenient because ministry is giving of ourselves for the good of someone else. As John the Baptist said, as he increases, I must decrease. Giving is not convenient. Forgiving is not convenient. Loving without condition is not convenient. Sharing the gospel will never be convenient. Some of you have accepted the ministry of adoption or fostering children. That will not be convenient. Reaching out to those who are not like you is, con- is not convenient. One of the greatest problems we have in the American church today is that we've let the defining characteristic that we look for in a church be, is that place convenient to my life? And we become consumers. See, the church's priority can never be convenience. The church's priority must be the mission of God. And these are the four things that we look at that following God requires and following Jesus requires. And as we close, let me give you some hope. You say, man, this is tough. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Let me give you some hope. Because God's not going to give you this life to follow without giving you the power to live it. Where's the strength to follow come from? You see that word behold there, or in the CSB it says see, right there in verse number 23. In the original Greek, the word is edu, which is an extremely strong word. It's like saying, pay attention and look at this. Stop everything you're doing and pay close attention because after this, what comes after this is everything you're going to need to ingest what you've just heard. So what are we told to look at? Look at what it says in verse number 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. This verse here is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14, which we often hear at Christmas. We don't understand the context sometimes that it comes in. You see, it was originally given by Isaiah to King Ahaz in 700 B.C. Judah, and King Ahaz was the king of Judah. He was a wicked king, but he was the king over Judah, and Syria had them under siege And Syria was about to storm the gates, and they were about to take over the entire country. And Isaiah comes to Ahaz, and he says, Ahaz, don't worry. God is going to give you a sign because he's going to keep the promise that he has made to Abraham years ago, that I will bless the nations through you. I will not let my people fall. I will have my people in the palm of my hand. And here's the sign. A child will be born of a virgin. And Ahaz is like, I don't want this sign. And he's like, because I don't want to do what God says in order to get that sign. He's like, it doesn't matter who you are. God is God, and he's going to give the sign anyway. The problem was that word virgin there was used in two contexts. It was used in the, in the, in the terms of a person who had never had intercourse, and it was also used in the terms of a a woman who was of marriable age. So when people look at that in the more common usage, they look, okay, so here's the sign. A woman's going to have a baby, and they're going to name him Emmanuel. So that's our sign that we're going to be protected. Just a baby's going to be born. And so for 700 years, everyone started saying, hey, this is Emmanuel. He's the one that's going to heal us. And everybody's like, man, it's not happening. But then along comes an actual virgin of the less common sort, and that's miraculous. That's impressive. That draws people's attention. And then people are thinking, oh, man, maybe God is doing something here. Maybe God is doing something. And what we should see from this is that God has kept all of his promises up till now. He's going to keep all of his promises hereafter. God didn't just stop keeping promises when the Bible was finished. God's still keeping promises today. 
You may ask this, is God really active? That's what people ask for 700 years. What's God doing? Because God goes silent after a while, too, for 400 years. They think, where is God? What is he doing? And all God is saying is, behold, look at the promise. A virgin will conceive. Maybe you're asking where God is in your life. Here's the sign. A virgin shall conceive. And not just that, that virgin-born baby is going to be your salvation. Some doubt God's existence based upon what God has done for them or hasn't done for them. If I were to ask my kids to make, a, to make a case for my existence based upon the fact that I always do what they want, they would not make a very good case for my existence because I don't always do what they want. I know what's best for them. Then why do we sit and make a case for God's existence based off, based off whether he does every single thing that we want him to or not? God is God whether we get everything we want from him or not. And he's still the one that we need to follow. You see, he gives us a virgin baby, but he also gives us a remarkable name as a promise too. The baby's given two names in our text, Jesus and Emmanuel. The first name indicates what he does, Yahweh or God saves. The second name indicates who he is. What does the Bible say the interpretation of Emmanuel is? God with us. The most foundational doctrine of Christianity is that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man when he was here on earth. He was born of God, but he was born of a virgin, and she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. He was born as a man because he had to be a man to be our true representative on the cross. Only God as a man could go to the cross because only God as a man could go to the cross as a sinless sacrifice. And he had to be God because he's the only one capable to save us. The message of the Old Testament is that salvation belongs to our God. That's the entire message of the, of, of the Old Testament. Salvation belongs to God. And he's not going to sub salvation out to a lesser being. He's going to provide it through himself. This is where the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses get this all wrong. This is where the Bible is very clear. Jesus is God. When Jesus was on the cross, God was on the cross. And number two, the whole point in God's creation was that we would have a relationship with him. See, God walked with Adam and Eve in Eden. He was with Israel, leading them out of slavery into the promised land. He had built them a tabernacle where his glory would come to dwell in the midst of them. Jesus was born, and the angel said, call him Emmanuel, God with us. Throughout the Bible, we see evidences of God being with us. Now we have Emmanuel, God with us for once and for all, Jesus Christ. And then when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and now they said, God in us, which the Holy Spirit now lives in us today. God is not only with us now, but he is in us now. Kind of makes that iPad that you're getting your kids for Christmas seem a little insignificant now, doesn't it? You see, we weren't created to serve a distant God who sits up in heaven watching over you like a disconnected judge, just waiting for you to mess up. You were created to love a father who cares enough to walk with you and talk with you and hold you through life's ups and downs. And then when life is over, he's going to carry you to his home, give you a room in glory, a mansion in glory, where you will forever be with him to worship him in a place where there is no more sorrow, there is no more pain, there is no more brokenness, there is no more suffering and sacrifice. God with us means that God suffers as we suffer following him. Jesus, God does not call us to a life of suffering that he did not first go through. You see that trust and obedience? God was the perfect obeyer. 
He was obedient to, G- to God on the cross when he, when he sacrificed himself for our sins. That self-denial, God den- Jesus denied himself of glory for 33 years to come and be our sacrifice. That death sentence, he took the death sentence that we owe so that we could receive life. And that life of inconvenience, nothing about Jesus' life was simple. The very end of Matthew's gospel says this, I am with you always. He begins his gospel with God is with us and it ends with Jesus' promising, I will be with you always. As we get ready to close out, think about the gifts that you've received for Christmas. Remember the gifts, what's your favorite gift you received when you were a kid? Do you still have that gift? Do you still use it? Or has it long since been broken, long since been thrown into the goodwill pile or the yard sale pile? So we get gifts and then the gift wears off. Jesus is the only gift that we get and he just keeps on giving. And that's important because as we follow him, we need him. We need him desperately. So the question I have this morning is, will you follow him? Joseph could have said, you know what, I ain't doing this. This is too much. Think about Joseph's life and what it would have been like had he said, you know what, I'm checking out, find somebody else. He would have kept his business. He would have kept his home. He would have kept his reputation. He would have probably had a nice little life. But guess what he would have missed out on? He would have missed out on Jesus. And that's the struggle that we all have today too. Choose this day who you will serve. Do you want to serve Jesus? Or do you want to just kind of putter around with him a little bit? I can tell you, it's challenging when you serve him. Man, it's so much better. If you're here today, you're living your life and you're trying to build yourself a nice little life. But if it doesn't include Jesus, that's all it's gonna be. A nice little life, a good 75 years. What is that in the context of eternity? At the feet of Jesus for eternity with him. If you're here today and you're not saved, be saved. If you're here today, you say, I'm saved. I've just not been following. I just think that he's asking too much. Look at the virgin birth. Look at Emmanuel. He is right there with you. He's not gonna leave you. He's there and he has a purpose in it. The mess that Mary and Joseph lived in has become the beauty that all of us live by. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, 